Welcome to episode 100 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, 100th episode, brother. <laughs> hey, brother. We sounded so enthusiastic in that opening. We, we are enthusiastic because this is our 100th episode. Happy 100, Tony. Happy 100. We are now 100 weeks old. Here's what's crazy about this. There's somebody out there, perhaps multiple people, who have listened to 100 hours of us rambling. Yeah. What is wrong with you people? Oh, God bless you kidding. all. So... Uh, that's all we're going to say about the 100th episode, I think, right? Agreed. So we're going to call this the regulative principle of podcasting. <laughs> uh, we've kind of established this, I don't know, reputation or pattern. I don't know what you want to call it, but we've established this thing where we just don't do the normal thing. Like we don't, we didn't really do much. I mean, for 50th, we worked together. So we made kind of a big deal out of that. We Didn't we call it like the Pentacast or something? The Pentacast. Like yeah. Yeah. And Great um, episode. we, we I mean, we didn't do like special Christmas episodes, except to like rail on the practice of celebrating unbiblical holy days. So <laughs> we just got like so, a special episode in itself. Yeah. So we're thankful that we've made it to a hundred episodes, but this is probably just going to be another episode in the long, hopefully long, long chain of episodes that long catalog continue for some time. So we're we'll just going to keep the, doing what we the do. Centicast. Happy Centicast. I love it. Can't stop. Won't stop. Exactly. So, Jesse, let's flip things over a little bit here, and let's start out with some denials. I what like are that. you denying this week? Have you seen the Jesus fish that people put on their vehicle sometimes? Yes, I have. Those okay. things are annoying. They are annoying, but actually, I'm going to go one step further and deny something that I find even more annoying, and that is, oh. have you seen these Darwinian fishes that are eating the Jesus fish that people put yes. on their vehicles? Yeah. I just want to deny against that. Mainly, not so much because I find it offensive, but because I find it obnoxious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like a perfect example of presuppositional apologetics and like borrowed capital, right? They it, can't even get exactly, their own symbols. Exactly. I've been wondering, what symbol do I need to put on my car that says, I'm willing to love you even though you're making a mockery of a Christian symbol? Is there something like that that I can put on my vehicle? I don't think you can put it on your vehicle. I, I think that's just like, being a Christian. <laughs> I mean, like, you, enough. You, you, don't, you let your light, you like, let your good work shine before men, not like, I, you guys did an episode on Fast God stuff where you talked about like Christian bumper stickers and like That's how stupid true, that did. is to like put it on your car because it's like, you're never a good witness when you're driving. If you're a good witness when you're driving, they're in front of you and can't see you anyways. That's true. So, Hardly ever. Yeah. Yeah. I don't so, think there's a symbol. I'm sure there's a bumper sticker that says, like, I love you even though you cut me off because Jesus something, something. But <laughs> but those those bumper stickers just, I mean, it would just make me mad if I saw something like that. I agree. And that's where I come to land with this whole Darwin fish thing. It just seems like unnecessarily combative. Like, just put what you're for. It, that's fine. If Even if it's something like those obnoxious coexist bumper stickers. Have you seen those where every letter is like some relative symbol from some kind of religious philosophy? Even that is better. I think it it, just tell me what you're for, but it's just really obnoxious. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? I'm denying sleep deprivation. Oh, good call. So uh, we went to the beach and our dog got on a regular sleeping schedule 
and actually like was sleeping later than I wanted to. So I had to change my alarm clock because the dog used to be my alarm clock because she would get up at like four in the morning. And so she was sleeping till like five 30 and I, I was like, I don't have enough time to do the things I want to do. So I started getting up at five and I think the dog was like, uh, I, I can beat you. This is a game. I can beat you. I'm going to get up before you. So now she gets up at like four or five and I'm like, uh, I think I That's broke her early. Yeah. So I, I get up and I like throw her back in the bed and I like shove her down under the covers. And she lays down between my feet, but I, you don't really get back to sleep because she's, you know, like I get back to sleep, but it's only for like 20 minutes before my alarm goes off. So I'm a little, uh, a little punchy and a little loopy like that's perpetually great. because I haven't slept for well for like a couple days now. Yeah. That, that's great. That's the best possible place to be when we're about to yeah. record a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So Jesse, what are you affirming today? I'm even more excited. So this week, the wall street journal read an article entitled who's super stoked about spike ball beach bros and Mennonites. And I shared this article with you because I loved it so much. So if you're not familiar and you're listening to this, there's this relatively new two-on-two sport, which has rules that are similar to volleyball, but instead of spiking a large ball over a net, the players basically smash this smaller ball down onto a trampoline-like net. And what I learned from this article is I had no idea that essentially central Pennsylvania is like the mecca of this sport and specifically Mennonite and Amish community, which I just think is fantastic. So yeah. I want to I want to read like a quick excerpt from this article because it's so hilarious. But so this is what the wall and this is in the journal, which is reporting this, which I also think is fantastic. That is fantastic. So here's what they say: Spike ball, Spike ball has become an obsession among Mennonites that some churches are making time for children to play between or before the morning services. And here's a quote from Beth Friesen, who's a youth director at Deep Run West. She says, we get complaints from some of the other congregation members because the kids can get pretty loud. So apparently there are all these nightly pickup games in Lancaster County, which is very close to where I live. And I love that there's this manager of international operations, Spikeball International Operations. His name is Joel Graham, and he's quoted in the article as saying, um, He's, he's talking about the Amish children in their traditional attire coming to these matches. And he says, I thought that maybe they were there to watch. And then they ran out there in dresses and long pants and started diving around. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> I so would... I'm, I'm affirming Spikeball in the fact that apparently Mennonites and the Amish are dominating this really random sport. And so because of that, it's been centered in this really strange place in central Pennsylvania. I, I would pay money to watch... Amish people <laughs> really do just about anything, but especially active sports that involve trampolines. Because if you've been to any probably US beach, you probably come across people playing this game. And it is a game that requires you to move quite a bit and to dive around to jump all over the place. So that kind of attire is not normally what you'd expect to see in athletic competition. Yeah. But I'm with you. I just love that they're getting after it in spike ball. And I would certainly come and watch that. Maybe I will go and watch that since apparently it happens right around here. Yeah. I mean, the, the article makes it sound like you can just drive around Lancaster and see Amish people like playing spike ball. You know, Ashley and I, when we visited not last year, but the year before we went to Amish country and we actually had a tough time finding what seemed to be authentic Amish people. Legit so like, Amish. There was one point that we were driving and there was a buggy coming our way, like a horse drawn buggy. And I got all excited. I was like, is this it? I think this is it. And the guy had like a milkshake from sheets in his hand. And I was like, that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't seem right. Or there was another part where like 
um, we saw someone out in a field, like we were driving by someone's out in a field and we pulled over to kind of watch a little bit, which they probably don't like very much, but we, we were pulling over to watch and like the guy like stopped and I was like, Oh, what's he going to do? Is he going to do something Amish? And he like pulled out his iPod to like change the song. And I was like, uh, <laughs> is he going to so, do something? Amish? Yeah. We had a tough time finding real Amish people. So well, it's cause they're all playing spike ball. I know we got to go to the spike ball arena. Is there a spike ball arena? I, it's a barn probably. Yeah, that's true. Or a cornfield. Or a that they have the, the spike ball courts <laughs> hidden in the the cornfields, like on uh, Field of Dreams. That's probably happening somewhere right if now. If you build the spike ball arena, the Amish will come to uh, you. They'll, they will definitely come according to the journal. So I'm affirming the journal, and I'm affirming spike ball and its strong Mennonite Amish presence. How about you? What's on your affirm list this week? I have 100,000 things to affirm today so we uh have crossed the threshold into a hundred thousand land for downloads which is uh is amazing like i never thought we would be anywhere near that and this is actually this is a little anticlimactic because we switched podcasting hosts uh about a year and a couple months ago i think it was in may so we're a little over a year and we had maybe like six thousand downloads in the old system but we've got 105,000 downloads in our new podcasting system since May. So that is a huge thank you to all of our listeners. We have Inconceivable. the best, the absolute best podcast listeners. I'm constantly getting little notes on Facebook and we're getting emails and voicemails, little things on Twitter, like jotting for encouragement. Actually on Twitter, um, I saw today somebody was... Um, had like a friend who was struggling with their assurance and he linked our perseverance of the saints episode. And I, I would be uh, remiss. And we're actually, this actually touches on a little bit of what we're going to talk about today, but I would be remiss to not be thankful for that. But I also would be silly to think that this is some sort of formal ministry, but nevertheless, even though it's not a ministry, God still ministers to his people in a variety of ways. And so I am very humbled and honored to have our little our silly little podcast we just like we talk and we make jokes for an hour but it like really is impacting people for the gospel so i'm thankful for that i'm thankful for the the ways that god has blessed our show and and i'm just hopeful that he'll continue to do so and the jokes aren't even that good no they're not for the record yeah i don't know people people must not stay for the jokes because the jokes are usually pretty terrible well, I want to ride the coattails of that affirmation and, and also express some thanks, not only to those who've listened, but so many have given very sacrificially with their praise and with their money. And so yeah. I'm just so thankful for those who have wanted to join in on this vision of, of brotherhood and sisterhood and make this a family affair that extends across the United States and even globally. We have some wonderful listeners who have reached out all over the world. And yeah. that really restores in me this wonderful concept that the family of God really is a family. And we and the wonderful thing is that we can use the internet to really move those hurdles and bring us closer together. So I hope that people will keep calling and sharing their voices and their questions and their comments and their observations, even if those are critical, because our desire really is to make God glorified in our conversation, in our interaction that's even just beyond you and I talking. Yeah. You know, I, I listened to Catholic Answers Live. Have you ever heard that show? <laughs> yes. This is great. I have no it idea all where this connects. is going. Yeah, yeah. This all actually circulates around the topic we're going to talk about a little bit tonight, I think. But um, I listened to Catholic Answers Live, and they're doing like their, I think they do it quarterly, but they do their like pledge drive. 
And uh, Jimmy Aiken, who is their senior apologist, he actually said on the air, and he said it twice in the in the course of an hour. He said this two different ways. He actually said that uh, you get eternal rewards if you donate money to Catholic Answer Live. Wow! Because you are supporting the ministry of the Word, and and God promises eternal, infinite rewards for those who contribute financially to support that. So it's like. It's like you can get indulgences from the Pope for like following him on Twitter or like watching him on YouTube. You can get eternal rewards for like uh, donating money to a Catholic podcast. So we're not going to promise you eternal rewards. We're not even going to promise you a great podcast. <laughs> we just really appreciate all the help we can get because we don't always know what we're doing. And so any support you have is much appreciated. That's great. So basically, take whatever happens in Catholic Answers Live, and this is the exact opposite of that in every yeah. conceivable way. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is the op- except for the fact that we're both a podcast. True. That's that's not opposite. That's it, though. Like I said, people, bad jokes. There's bad jokes <laughs> and sometimes questionable theology. These are free of charge. Yes, yes. So, what are we talking about tonight, Jesse? So there was another article that kind of was making its its way around that was not related to Spike Ball this past week. And this I've seen all over the internet, but I thought it was a good foil for our conversation. And the article I'm referring to is was actually posted to Relevant. And it's about a church in Colorado that has a really particular job listing for a pastor. And yes. it's basically summed up by saying this, this. They say this offer is going to be nothing like any other church job post. And they go on to say that basically in their area, there are hungry people. There are people hungry for spiritual food, uh, but there are basically no good pastors available to them. And they say, when you watch a sermon from, you know, Craig Rochel or Andy Stanley or Stephen Furtick, you feel like you were fed. And they ask, why can't we have in a church, or can we have that in a church without playing videos from the above pastors? So let me just read very quickly what they say about this job posting and why it's a good, I think, foil for conversation tonight. So they say, here's our concept. If a worship leader can take a song from Chris Tomlin and play it, play it just like the album, and that's 100% accepted in the church, why can't you as a pastor copy or do a word for word of a sermon from somebody else? So the idea here is they can't find enough good pastors. And so they're saying, we just want to hire somebody that will just come in and read word for word somebody else's sermon. And this got me thinking about preaching generally. And so clearly this is bringing to light an understanding of well, what is preaching yeah. and how do we define it and what is its purpose in the church? So I thought we should talk about that. Not necessarily this particular listing because there is a precedent, at least historically, to have this kind of situation, at least for a short period of time when it's the the only option available that you might right. use resources from somebody else. But I thought we should really just talk about what is preaching. And I wanted to start with kind of getting your sense for what do you think or how would you describe the kind of state of preaching in, let's just start with like America these days. What's your sense about what the state of preaching is like? Yeah. Um, well, let me, before I answer that, let me just say two quick things about this posting. First, um, I am astounded that anyone would say that is in the know of things that they could watch a Stephen Furtick sermon and feel like they got fed. Um, because it is, 
I mean, I, I don't know. Have you ever listened to an entire Stephen Furtick sermon? I have. There is a part of this listing that is disturbing just because of the examples that they chose. Yeah. And I agree yeah. with you. So I think the the premise of this posting that we have a dearth of um, a dearth is dearth like an a, vo- a gap. Yes, it is. You know what? I was going to use that word, but then I refrained because I yeah. thought I was going to sound like too lame or nerdy. So I'm glad that you just jumped in for me. Yes, lame and nerdy. That's that's. I'm going to get that oh, tattooed sorry. on my arm. Um, <laughs> so we have a dearth of qualified preachers in the church. Um, and that that is in large part, and I suppose I'm I'm kind of answering your question, anyways. Um, that's in large part because of things that happened in the Second Great Awakening, where um, the the focus on preaching became more about tactics and emotional appeals, and sort of whooping people up into a frenzy or whooping people up emotionally into a certain kind of um, state of mind, where you can then kind of like like flip the script on them and, and sort of trick them into doing what you want them to do. And so through the great awakening and on into things like Billy Graham crusades, um, people came to faith in these sort of very shallow, um, and I, I think people genuinely came to faith. So I got, God uses those things. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Totally get that. But because of the way that a large portion of evangelicals came to faith, um, combined with sort of the influence of liberalism and sort of a, a minimization of the classic doctrines of the Christian faith, preaching became very sort of vapid. It became very empty. And, um, you know, you see a lot of times on top of that, you now have people who you have to approach felt needs in addition to the gospel. So you have, you might have a sermon series that's an exposition of Peter and it's a decent exposition, but it's kind of shallow. And then like the next six months, you have these sort of self-help sermons where we're going to teach you how to do your finances. We're going to teach you how to how to raise your kids and how to have right. a healthy marriage and how to have great sex and how to enjoy your life and how to get a raise and all these different self-help topics that have like Bible verses sprinkled on top of them. Um, now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not. I'm not entirely opposed to topical sermons. I'm not entirely opposed to those if the topic of the sermon is exegetically grounded. So, if you want, if you want to talk, do a sermon series where you explore what God has to say about marriage, and so you have that topic that runs through your sermons rather than like a uh, like a lectio continua, you know, verse by verse sermon series. That's fine for a time. I think in general you should be doing through the Bible kinds of preaching. But because of those two phenomena, a lot of churches are just, the the preaching is just really, really shallow. Um, if, if the gospel is mentioned, it's kind of an add-on. Um, the, the, I used to think this was a cynical question because I would ask it when I felt cynical about a sermon, but I actually don't think it's, it's that cynical of a question. I think it's actually a good way to sort of assess whether a sermon is a good sermon or not is when I listen to any sermon, I ask myself the question at the end, if someone was to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Could that sermon have given them the answer to that question? Yeah, that's good. In general, if the answer is no, then that sermon was not I don't think was a proper sermon. Um, That doesn't mean every sermon has to have like an altar call or like a specific discussion of justification. But in general, every sermon should point to the fact that humans need a savior. Jesus is that savior. And only by trusting in Jesus can you obtain that salvation. Right on. So the current state of preaching in America is what gives rise to this kind of a thing. And as you said, there's a historic precedent for this, right? When Luther coming into the Reformation 
recognize there are no qualified preachers, right? There, there's a bunch of priests who don't even understand the Latin words that they're saying. They can't read the Bible. How do we expect them to teach the, the people the Bible? Even, even those people coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, they weren't qualified to understand the Bible. You essentially have an entire generation of basically baby, baby Christians who don't understand the Bible. And so Luther, and I, I believe there was some of this going on in the Reformed churches as well, but I, I, don't, I don't know for sure, but Luther actually published sort of a, a collection of sermons or homilies that a, a priest or a pastor in, in a Lutheran church could get up and read. And that was a way of guaranteeing that the people got text. They got, they got the a sermon exposited, a scripture exposited week by week that included all the necessary elements and was a faithful articulation of the gospel. So what is going on in this with this church posting has some precedent. I don't think there's any good excuse in the society that we live in for there not to be enough qualified preachers though. Right. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, doing an MDiv. I haven't talked about that on the show here, but I'm doing an MDiv through uh, the North American Reform Seminary. And the first course they have you take is a prep, it's called preparatory studies. And you're reading all these books and listening to lectures on um, like a call to ministry, a theology of a call to ministry. And one of the things that uh, I think it's W.S. Plummer says is that every Christian man should ask himself, am I called to the ministry? And for the vast majority of Christian men, the answer is going to be no, because most most Christian men are not called to be in vocational ministry. But he says, am I called to the ministry is a question we should all ask. And the reason for that is that God only calls those who seek in terms of vocation, right? I know there's all this talk of like, yeah, I never wanted to be a pastor. And then all of a sudden, you know, my pastor was sick and then he died. And I was just the guy that was left. You know, there's all these weird stories where people sort of stumble into ministry, but those exceptions and the fact that their exceptions actually prove the rule is the people who got called into ministry. Those are the people who are seeking to go into ministry. So in our current culture, there's no excuse for there not to be qualified qualified men to preach. Um, there's resources out there. All of the courses that I'm taking at the North American Reform Seminary are free and available online. You can listen and to every single lecture that I'm going to have to listen to, and you can read every single book that I'm going to have to read, and it will cost you zero, zero, zero. So there's there's resources available, and there are seminaries available that have lots of good tuition scholarships. And I'm not actually even saying that a person has to go to seminary in order to be qualified. So that that kind of gets us where we are is we're in this situation where there's no there's a lack of good preaching, there's a lack of qualified men to preach. We don't really have a good excuse or a good reason for it like they did in the Reformation, right? There was a good reason why there weren't qualified preachers is it was a generation of people who had never been faithfully preached to. Right. But that does give us the question of, well, what is preaching? What does it mean to preach a sermon and how do we reflect on that? And I think that that's a really important question. Yeah, I think your assessment is really fair. We're certainly not saying and not naive enough to think that there is not good preaching happening in many places across this country. But by and large, the impression that we're given, especially from the quote-unquote celebrity preachers, is that it is very light. It's like preaching light. right? And that's been a problem, I think, across many different generations. In fact, I was looking at a book recently that was written in 1592 by this dude named William Perkins. It's entitled The Art of Prophesying, which in that day and age is the word prophesying is, of course, equivalent to our modern vernacular preaching. And in that book, 
this guy is lamenting the scarcity of true biblical ministers, which he says yeah. is self-evident from experience of all ages. And he, then he goes on to really complain that few men of quality seek the calling of ministry. And even those that do, they don't deserve the title to even be yeah. honored as preachers. And he goes to like these three specific reasons why. One is he talks about like the contempt of that calling, kind of like what you're saying, that biblical ministry is hated by the world because it reveals sin and unmasked hypocrisy. And then there's just a difficulty in discharging those duties. I mean, the care and the charge of souls to be the one who speaks to God on behalf of the people and then to the people on behalf of God, that's an overwhelming responsibility. And then I found this particularly interesting, and this is not really that germane to our conversation, but he also quotes from this idea of that there's an inadequacy of financial recompense and status, which is yeah. interesting, even back then in 1592. But I'm, I'm total agreement with you. With respect to preaching, I think many churches are lost, not necessarily to heresy, but to the fact that the Bible is being relegated from the driving seat to the passenger seat, right. where it makes a useful companion. It's a map to be consulted from time to time, but it does not really determine the direction of the vehicle. And so you're right. We need to get at then what is preaching and why should it be have this place of primacy among what happens on the Lord's day. So being that you've had a lot of great, like I would say, formal education, do you have like a definition of preaching that you go to or that's kind of in your mind when you're talking to people about preaching or even as you're thinking, like you said, you're listening to a sermon and asking that great question, which by the way, I've never considered that question before, but I love that. And it reminded me real quick of a story that's told, I think, in the book, uh, preaching by the book, which is, I think, a compendium of all kinds of writing, but it's edited, I think, by, I just lost it. Who's the dude that is in Boston with the large Presbyterian church? Um, Gordon Hugerberger? No. Um, I can't remember Go it. People are screaming out the name right now. Yeah. I mean, in, there was Adam car. Robinson. I don't no, think it's had hadn't passed away a few years ago. But. Yeah, I can't remember. But regardless, there's a story in there that's fantastic. And it's about a gentleman who was a Presbyterian minister, took a new church in a small area, rural area, had a relatively small congregation. And there was an elderly woman in there who was passionate about Jesus and about the preaching of the gospel. And he tells the story of how whenever this woman was listening to any sermon from anybody who was preaching from the pulpit, if she felt that the gospel wasn't being proclaimed enough or that there was a big lapse in the subject matter such that Jesus wasn't coming up enough, she would just yell out, get him up. And <laughs> I, I, he, he talked about how intimidating that was, but also how, how much it improved his accountability yeah. and his understanding of what he was preaching. And so I just thought of that in terms of your question. There's been several times now where I've been listening to a sermon either online or in person somewhere, not at my church. And I thought, I want to say right now, get him up. And I, yeah. I think that's just a wonderful way to approach it. So anyway, that's a long introduction to my question of how you define preaching. So in my seminary education, my, my first round of seminary education, um, I, I didn't have courses on preaching because I, I wasn't, that wasn't my field of study. So I don't want to say that they don't cover this, um, but I, I didn't experience this at Gordon-Conwell. Um, most of what I've understood and learned about the like the purpose and the theological nature of preaching, I've actually learned from listening to lectures by Carl Truman and Mike Horton. And so one of the things that Carl Truman especially um, points to is he points to the Second Helvetic Confession. Now, the Second Helvetic Confession is not one that we usually go to. Um, it's 
to be honest, I think it's kind of weird at times. And, and I've said this before that I actually think the second Helvetic confession sort of represents almost like a half-baked confession in some places. Um, like it still refers to Mary as the ever virgin. There's things that right. are sort of um, things that were not quite fully reformed out of the church yet. But in the first article, which is like most of the reformed confessions, is a, a reflection on the doctrine of scripture. Um, in the first chapter... There's this interesting section on preaching, and I'm just going to read the whole thing. It's, it's like the third or fourth paragraph. It says, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God, and that's the heading. And it says, wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful, and that neither any other word of God is to be invented nor is to be expected from heaven. And now the word itself, which is preached, is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches. For even if he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless, the word of God remains still and true. And so for me, as I've reflected on preaching, um, you know, especially since I've come to this church, um, I don't know why, but there's in this has been like a season of my life where the concept of preaching and what preaching is has really been kind of in the forefront of my thought. And I think some of it is just um, I'm sitting under a single preacher more and for more time than I ever have in one block of period of my life. But also I have the responsibility at times to fill the pulpit um, when pastors away. So I've, I've reflected on this. And the preaching of the word, the reason William Perkins called it prophesying is because it is, it, it's the new covenant version of what happened under the prophets and the apostles. And not, right. not in a sort of a charismatic mystical sense, but the, the function of a prophet is to communicate the very word of God to from God to the people. And now the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament prophets, and the apostles, they received that word immediately and they communicated it to the people. But after the close of the canon, the word of God comes to us through the scriptures. And so the, the pastor is prophetically proclaiming what the word of God says and explaining that to the people. And so when, when a person steps into the pulpit, um, particularly an ordained minister of the gospel steps into the pulpit and they open up the scriptures. And, and I don't mean open up just in terms of like actually opening the book, but they open, they exposit the scriptures. They crack open the word of God and they reveal what's inside because of their study and because of what the spirit has illuminated to their hearts. They reveal that to the congregation. If that's faithfully done, it is the very word of God that is being preached. And that word of God is a confrontation. It's a summons, right? So it's, it's the, this, this is largely coming out of Horton is that it's the covenant Lord proclaiming through his delegated ambassador, his messenger proclaiming to the congregation, you are mine. And the congregation has a choice to either respond like Isaiah did and says, here I am, Lord, send me or like Adam did and hide. And so that that's what preaching is. It's not a lecture, it's not a speech, it's not a it's not a testimony. It's the pastor, it's a confrontational act wherein the pastor actually comes and on God's behalf confronts the congregation with the truth of the word of God. And the elect in the congregation respond in faith and worship. The reprobate in the congregation, they respond by hardening their hearts further. Right on. That's well said. By the way, I want to. I just need to catch us up so that again I don't get a million emails. I gave you the wrong city when I was trying to have you guess 
author. I yeah, said, you were talking about New York, weren't you? Yes. Yeah, it's Tim Keller. It's Tim Keller, yes. Yeah. I, I, that's my New England roots. I just think all cities should be Boston. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think sometimes it's helpful as well when we think about preaching, and we're talking about biblical preaching to be mm-hmm. really precise, to think about what it's not and to kind of take the, the contrary perspective in terms of approaching it a different way than what you've just affirmed. I think sometimes we may have so overreacted to the mystical and the subjective emotional in preaching that we now see it in terms of dispensing biblical knowledge rather than pleading with God in prayer and men in proclamation to change right. their lives in time for eternity. So in other words, we basically kind of sometimes go into this preach the word has become explain the Bible. Right. And sometimes there's a confusion between church and the academy. And to me, the field hospital is a more biblical model than the university seminar room. But it is still the word that does the work because we don't want information. We want transformation. And so I was thinking, you know, in preparation for our conversation, how I would understand that in terms of looking at the example of Jesus, because there's so much that we can glean from Jesus in terms of how we should understand what preaching should be like. And I like your idea of it being confrontational because the truth, because of our sinful nature, always is going to cut across us. So even sermons that are uplifting, there's some element in that where we should be understanding that there is a truth here that's hard for us still. Right. And we have to kind of move through that. And part of the gloriousness of the mercy of God is understanding, of course, the hard edge of sin. But I was thinking of Luke 4, and this you know, will be very familiar to many, of Jesus being in the synagogue and then standing up and reading from Isaiah. But I love that verse that he picks from Isaiah, and I'm just going to read Luke 4, 18 and 19. This is Jesus speaking. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So we get this proclaim it three times, that verb strong in the course of just two sentences, basically. And so what floors me is here is Christ preaching Christ from the Old Testament. Yeah. But Jesus not only interprets Isaiah, he's also interprets like the Nazareth congregation. And so right. there's something, of course, that exemplifies the pattern of scripture interpreting scripture. But it's as if though like the sermon has an ellipse with two focal points. Like there's the biblical text and there's the condition or the situation of the hearers. And right. this goes back to what you said. At one level, the message is received well because we're told that all of them spoke of him and they were just amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But at a deeper level, it's profoundly rejected because not more than two sentences later, there's a bunch of people saying, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, we know this guy. Yeah. Like, how is it that he's, he's saying these things? So Jesus proclaims a message you know, from authority with God. And in Nazareth, the hearts were hardened. And in Capernaum, they were softened. So faithful preaching ministries really, they harden as well as soften hearts, right? Right. Yeah. And I, I think that that's a really insightful um, analogy there of the, the ellipse with two focal points. And that's why something like um, what this church is proposing is not really advisable. Right. Because the, the proper preaching of the word, um, recognizing neither of us are pastors, both of us occasionally fill the pulpit for our pastors, but neither of us are pastors. Neither of us are called or um, have been recognized by the church as qualified men in any sense. So, but recognizing that preaching is this interplay between taking the biblical text and applying the biblical text to the congregation in front of you. So, so that's really the difference between like a lecture, right? You could you could have a brilliant master lecturer 
who knows the topic and knows the subject, write the lecture out and then give that lecture material to an actor and, and coach that actor to deliver it the way they want. Right. And that exactly. actor could go from school to school to school to school and have the exact same effect in each school because the intention of that lecture is, is I, and I don't want to say merely like it, this is a negative thing, but the intention of that is merely to convey information in, a, in an effective manner. Preaching is not just about conveying information about God, right? That's a theology lecture. Um, there is debate about what, what, what's required of those who would teach theology in terms of is, is the office of teacher have to do with education or just the ministry. But um, there's nothing specific about teaching a lecture, a theology lecture, that requires a special, unique gifting from God, right? Bart Ehrman probably could teach a systematic theology session and do a fine job and communicate that information wonderfully. He knows it. He understands it. Um, Derek Webb could give a very fine theology lecture if he wanted to. Right. And he did. And he did. He did a great job explaining the theology. of. I mean, there were little things that were were not quite right, but he did a fine job explaining it when he was on Popcorn Theology. Um, the difference is, though, a pastor... And this is why things like multi-site campuses um, or like why a podcast can't replace your pastor, like those kinds of things. The reason is that a pastor should be applying the scriptures to his congregation, right? So Jonathan Edwards, um, Mark Dever is well known. He's He's an expert in Puritanism. He's well known for delivering Puritan sermons to his congregation. But even Mark Dever doesn't do that willy nilly. And he doesn't do that all the time. Right. You know, he may pick a sermon on a particular subject and apply that sermon to his congregation because he thinks that the 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 person who preached it originally did better than than he would, but he's still applying the text to his congregation by making an intentional choice. Whereas this congregation thing that we're trying to propose this just read a sermon no, like all you're doing then is it's basically just conveying a lecture. Um, if you're going to do that, then why not just pipe in, you know, why not just call Elevation Church and ask if you can pipe in in um, Furtick in the morning, right? If the point is just pulling in a, a pastor and it doesn't matter that this man is applying the text of this congregation, then why not just live feed in other things or play audio clips of, you know, someone over the, the intercom or the overhead speaker? Right. Um, so I think that that really does proper preaching is not a single person activity, right? A a pastor is also is is preaching, but the congregation is participating in that in a in a sense. Not in that you know like this this story of the lady who like yells things during the sermon. Uh, that would really bother me if I was preaching and suddenly I was getting like heckled from the crowd. And maybe like that's the point is like you know she does this. So she doesn't have to do it every time. She only has right. to do it once or twice. And then the person knows I better make sure that the, the Christ is the front and center of my sermon. Um, but th- the point is that, like I said, there's the, the pastor and there's the congregation. And there's kind of this this interplay that's happening between them in in there. Um, the, the pastor's preaching. The congregation is receiving, right, the, the uh, Helvetic Confession called out the fact that not only is the word of God preached, but it's fate received by the faithful. Um, so there's the, there's a difference between what's going on between a lecture and, and a congregation in terms of what's happening in the congregation as well. Video may have killed the radio star, but it's not going to kill the pastor. Right. Oh well, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, and that's the thing is like, 
if you've ever been involved in a in like a multi-site church where um you have uh video being piped in and you know there this is the reformed world too this isn't just the evangelical world that does this right, right. john piper i i went to john's piper church john piper's church a couple times but i never saw john piper preach live because i was just watching him on a video right i have friends that that go to the village and and you know one out of 5 weeks they might see matt chandler up front but the other weeks he's on the screen um so this is not just a a general evangelical thing or or circles that we would look on and say that's not good people within the reformed world also do this multi-site preaching thing and by doing that i think they miss the point of preaching for sure yeah i agree with that i think part of what happens with the marginalization of preaching is it betrays what true biblical preaching is Mm-hmm. So in an age when the church is no longer central to the fabric of society and has lost its credibility, preaching is presumptuous to many. Right. Because for one person to instruct others about matters of belief or behavior is unwarranted arrogance. And But that betrays what true preaching should be because the cry of the postmodern generation is basically, don't preach at me, bro. Right. And so that implies that it's more than just conveying some kind of knowledge or giving you some kind of, helping you to make some kind of intellectual sense. But I think of preaching as like the pastor coming after me with God's word. That yeah. it's more than just saying, this is what God says, but this is what God says to you. And this is how you should apply it in your life. I like some brief definitions, you know, out of the Reformation, the reformers basically regarded preaching as the source and spring of Christian faith. I think that's helpful. Right. I particularly love this quote from Cotton Mather, who says really succinctly, the grand design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the hearts of men. And that can't just happen by saying, well, here is what is in this text and here's what it says. Let me give you some more context and let me teach you about some of the original language. But it has to come with a proclamation. It's a heralding of the good good news. It's moving the gospel forward. And that is the part that is so lacking in a lot of the more celebrity sermons. And part of that is because it's just more convenient to, of course, always come forward with good news or to say things like God loves you and he has a great plan for your life and he wants you to be successful. And so I think what's helpful in this conversation is some would probably disagree with me on this, but while some would say, well, there's preaching that happens, you know, at Joel Olstein's church, I don't even think what he's doing goes over the bar of preaching. I just don't consider that preaching at all. Now, that might be splitting hairs because some would say, well, he's just preaching the wrong things. But that's the point of this conversation is that is not preaching. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, I think preaching is, in one sense, there's the technical sense we're using, right? The the opening and exposition of God's word. Right. There are lots of places where you just don't get that. That you get some sort of help, self-help lecture or some sort of motivational speech that uses the Bible as a um, as a prop for that motivational speech, and that's that's what I think you get at Joel Olstein's church is you have basically like a self-help or a motivational speech that sort of has the Bible um, as a theme in the speech. But you could probably Joel Olstein could probably just deliver basically the same sermon and could use the Harry Potter books as his foundation to give a motivational speech or something like that. They would be better uh, that way. It probably would be better that way. And I think with Joel, with um, people like Stephen Furtick though, I think you do get some preaching. So, so every once in a while, I don't listen to Stephen Furtick anymore. I, I used to listen to him 
fairly regularly, mostly because I just wanted to sort of keep my ear to the ground on what was going on out there. You, you once in a while you get like a really good kind of gospel nugget. Like he, he'll he'll once in a while will sort of stop being such a goofball and will sort of buckle <laughs> down. And I remember one of the there was one time that he he did a straight up sermon series on the attributes of God and how they how each attribute of God is is essential to the gospel. And and he it was they were biblical. And this is what I mean is like in a lot of these churches, Stephen Furtick, most people don't know this. Stephen Furtick has an MDiv from Southern Baptist Seminary. Yeah, he, true. His church is an SBC church. So so he's trained, he's educated, he's apt, he's he's actually able to teach. Um, other than sort of his weird childishness at times and some of the questionable moral things that that, you know, greediness and things like that that come up. I don't see a reason why he couldn't be qualified to teach under the the first Timothy requirements. He's an effective communicator. He understands the content of the Bible in a fair, and that actually makes it worse in my mind is he, he actually understands what the Bible says. And he, then he teaches other things that have nothing to do with that. So right. I think you have to, and, and that's kind of the, the Helvetic confession gets to that is that even when evil men, and I'm not saying that that Furtick is evil, um, but even when evil men rightfully explain the word, there's still power in that. So, so Stephen Furtick, even though he is not qualified to teach, um, I'm not sure if we would say he's lawfully ordained because I don't know that most Reformed people would consider his church a properly constituted church. And since he's Baptist, his church is what or is who ordained him. Um, but nevertheless, when he opens God's word and actually applies God's word to the scripture faithfully or to the congregation faithfully, that's preaching. Um, and it, it has the same effect. I know people who go to Elevation who have been saved under Stephen Furrick's preaching, um, who love the Bible and love Jesus and love to serve the church. Um, but that's not what you get most of the time. Um, right. So be- before we forget, I want to sort of pivot to how this ties into the other part of your question, which is this this church compared what they're proposing to what happens when a church uses like a worship song that was written by someone else. Yeah, let's talk so about that. How do you see that as different? So I see that as very different because, and this kind of goes to with the, the primacy of preaching itself in that, in the Lord's day. But, you know, the word isn't, the problem with basically saying, well, we're going to have somebody just read the sermon out. The, the problem with that is the word isn't in the preacher because the preacher isn't in the word. And instead right. of like a heart to heart proclamation, you just have a ministry performance. Now, I think that's different because preaching is at a higher level than even our response in singing. So if you were going to give me the choice, and this is coming from somebody who has a a strong passion for music and for worship through music, but if you're going to give me the choice between we can cut some of the music or we can cut some of the preaching, I'm going to always say every day of the week and twice on Sunday, cut the music. Yeah. Because what we're talking about here is the fact that preaching is... I like what you said about conversation. It is dialogical in two sentences, I think. You yeah. have the, it's between the preacher and the congregation so that what is said is weighed and tested. It's between God and the people, including the preacher, so that what is heard is believed and obeyed. And so that God who speaks is loved and worshiped. And that is very different from our response in song. And again, I'm not saying that that isn't important, but these are very different things. And part of that is because of how Jesus himself has transmuted worship from the Old Testament to the New. So the Old Testament elements of worship, and again, I think we think primarily of music, are drawn into Jesus. I mean, he's the temple now, he's the priest, he's the Passover lamb, he's the bread of life. And so the patterns of worship, you know, kind of take on a a different focus. The locus is away from a place or time into all of life. 
And so we cannot imagine that, of course, a church is gathering for worship on the Lord's Day, if by that we mean that it engages in something that it has not been doing every other day of the week. Right. And so that, I think, is primarily different then, because we are worshiping through music to bring about our mutual edification. That's something that doesn't happen every part of the week, every other time that we're you know, worshiping. But that can happen. And so the preaching of the word is something that's very different and right. that needs to have a place that is primary because the righteousness based on faith says that is engendered by preaching or rather that what God does in bringing men and women to new life, he does in and through preaching. So it's just irreplaceable. It, these are totally separate categories. Yeah, that, That's at least my viewpoint of it. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think another element to to think about is right the the second Helvetic confession which we recognize as a reformed confession um the preaching of the word is the word of god yes that's it's that's not the case with with congregational singing right exactly right? E- even and and i'm I might have some EP people, some exclusive psalmody people oh, you're that about would, to go psalmody would style. argue with me on this, but that includes if you're singing the Psalms. Right. Right. When, when the congregation sings the Psalms, that is not the, um, that's not the preaching of the word, right? Even the most, the most Psalm oriented churches would recognize that the congregational singing of the Psalms is different and, and requires different things and takes different forms than when the pastor might open up the Psalms and exposit that Psalm and, you know, apply it to the, the congregation. Exactly. So there's a difference between congregational singing, which is, is necessarily universal, right? Because it's, it's designed to be a uniting factor among all of the church. It's designed to be something that we all do together, right? That's, that's part of the reason why this sort of performance driven worship music that we see, right? This guy, the, the, they point out Chris Tomlin. Well, it's no surprise. And, and I like Chris, Chris Tomlin songs. I like Chris Tomlin. He seems like a nice guy. He seems like he loves the Lord. He seems like he's trying to serve the Lord, but Chris, you don't go to Chris Tomlin worship services. You go to Chris Tomlin concerts, right? Right. You don't go to, um, you know, you don't go to Matt Redmond worship programs. You go to Matt Redmond concerts. And that's that's not a mistake that you're going to a concert. So this this element of performance being kind of embedded and sort of smuggled into our congregational singing, um, you know, we call them worship choruses rather than like praise songs or like worship time. We call it congregation. We call it choruses. Well, a chorus is a group of people singing. It's not a soloist. It's not a performance. It's it's a group of people who are singing together. And so there's a difference between that, that the whole church, including the pastor, does together in basically the same function, right? When Ashley and I are leading musically, we're not we're not doing some sort of spiritual authoritative exercise. Exactly. We just happen to be the ones that have instruments in our hands and are sort of out in front of determining what's being sung. There's nothing saying that not everybody in the congregation could have an instrument. I mean, right. that would be chaos, but but if if you had a church where everybody knew how to play an instrument and 
um, and you could do it in good and orderly fashion and not chaotically, there's nothing saying that people couldn't bring their own instruments and supply their own part of the music in addition to their voice. I don't know practically how that could work, but theologically, that's just fine. Um, it's funny. I've mentioned this sort of charismatic element to this church I went to in Minneapolis, and we had one lady who always brought her own tambourine. Tambourine? To the it's always service. a tambourine. Well, it's because it's such an easy instrument to play. Or Why seemingly. not the triangle? But tambourine is actually really hard to play well. And she was always <laughs> to play she well. was always off. Either it was just like a straight, straight beat, no like rhythm or anything. It was just straight beat, or it was so crazy erratic. Sidebar. Um But there's nothing saying that the musical congregational singing, there's nothing special about the people up front in congregational right. singing. That's what I'm trying to say. It, the people up front are a circumstance of worship because in order for the congregation to sing effectively and not have it be a distraction, there has to be somebody who starts the tune and carries the melody and provides in our context, we say provides instrumentation to help people know what to sing. But right. that doesn't, there's nothing special spiritually about the person up front who's providing that circumstantial guidance. The pastor in most churches in our church, the pastor sits down and or stands with the congregation, usually facing the same direction as the congregation. So it's this moment where the congregation is all engaging in the same activity together, where preaching is a totally different exercise, where the pastor is addressing the congregation. And, and that's part of why there's a, there's a separation between the pastor and the congregation. The pastor is in some senses standing in on behalf of God and delivering a message on God's behalf. That's why like I said earlier, that's why the Puritans considered it prophecy. They considered an extension of that act of prophecy is the prophet comes forward, delivers a message on, God, on behalf of God's people right. as God's representative. That's part of why, like when they, they, I was reading Jeremiah this morning, in my devotions, they treat Jeremiah terribly. And, and one of the themes of Jeremiah is that they're treating Jeremiah terribly in a sense, typologically of how they're treating God. Right, they throw Jeremiah in the cistern because he won't tell them what they want to hear. And they've disregarded God because God won't tell them what he wants to hear. So the prophet and the pastor in New Testament era, they the, the pastor and prophet stand in on behalf of God in a similar way the priests did. And so right. it's it's different than congregational singing and that that just reveals that for this church and for much of evangelicalism, the preaching aspect of the the church service is no different in that it's just another form of performance. It's just another form of delivering content to a, a consumer base. And we want to give them the best content we can. So we're going to pull the best songs from the trendiest worship leaders. We're going to get the best sermons from the trendiest, you know, trendiest celebrity pastors. And we're just going to stuff their faces with it. Right. We're not going to worry about what they're dealing with in their life because who cares? It's just about getting the right information. And that's just not, that's just not what preaching is. This is going to sound extreme, but it's biblical, so whatever. It strikes me that, of course, the scriptures say that faith comes by hearing and not faith comes by singing. And when right. we look at all these examples, think of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip didn't teach him a song. It wasn't a chorus. He needed to exposit the scriptures in that moment and to bring forward the Christ. Yeah. And so, you know, I've been thinking of this sermon from Calvin that he actually gave on 1 Timothy 3.2, which is called Apt to Teach. Let me just read one sentence from that. That's so germane to what you just said. Calvin writes, 
For St. Paul does not mean that one should just make a parade here or that a man should show off so that everyone applauds him and says, oh, well spoken. Oh, what a breath of learning. Oh, what a subtle mind. All that is beside the point. When a man climbs, climbs up into the pulpit, is it so that he may be seen from afar and that he may be preeminent? Not at all. It is that God may speak to us by the mouth of a man. And of course, that preaching is not just the repetition of scripture or even careful exposition alone. It has to be actualized, skillfully and powerfully directed towards the hearers and their situations. So I think that's really the juxtaposition of what the, the crux rather of what's happening in that advertisement, what's, what's painfully missing. And I think this is why this has been like a really fruitful conversation. One of the things I want to do to end this topic and we didn't talk about this, Tony, so I'm going to put you on the spot, but I'll go first. Is Oh, man. I thought we've talked a lot about preaching. And with preaching, really, like many things, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And so I'd like to kind of extend this conversation for everybody who's listening and for us as well and recommend to some people some really good preaching, some good pastors who are faithful, have strong fidelity to the scriptures that are doing the very things that we've been talking about, and particularly recommending some podcast or some sermon audio of preachers that are not well known but who we say it would be great if everybody listened to them. I, I think uh, the list that I have, I would love to have everybody listen to them. And so really make them well-known because they are really quality preachers. So I think we should recommend two and I'll name one first. And then if you have one in mind, you can go after me. So I'm going to recommend uh, a pastor from a church in Alisa Viejo, California. And this is the Compass Point Bible Church. And the pastor's name, the senior pastor there is Pastor Mike Fabares. And you can look up Pastor Mike Fabares on any kind of internet or also in iTunes or any kind of podcast. The church there, Compass Point Bible Church, has a podcast and he is a fantastic expositor of the Word of God and really gets him up, gets Christ right in the center. And one of the things I appreciate about this particular church is that they let their pastor preach for a full hour. And I think that is also something that is very rare these days. And he is an ex- excellent example of true biblical preaching. Do you have somebody in mind now that I put you on the spot? Yeah. I mean, I, I listen to a lot of sermon feeds. Um, as I've mentioned before, I'm, I'm starting to shift my balance of kind of daily audio content um, more towards sermons away from podcasts. But um, I would say, and he's, he's pretty well known, but I, I haven't listened to his preaching ministry as much, and I'm really, really floored by it, is Liam Gallagher. Um, he, he preaches at uh, 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, um, which is a, a venerable historic pulpit that has a reputation and a long-standing history of faithful preaching. And he is so, um, he's such a crisp expositor, but he doesn't fall into that trap that a lot of really good expositors do of, of sort of a sterile exposition. He he's able to he, open the word and exposit the word, but it's also lively and it's it's engaging. Um, at times he can be very funny. He's he's um, Scottish, so he has sort of that dry Scottish wit at times. Um, but it's just really good stuff. You can find him on Sermon Audio. That's beautiful. So let me give one more, and I would be remiss if I didn't recommend this particular pastor, and that's because part of God's graciousness and loving kindness to me is that He purposefully put me as the son of a preacher and a preacher who is fantastic and who has modeled for me what true exposition and true proclamation looks like. And in my life, every other pastor gets compared to this gentleman. And that is my father, the Reverend Dr. 
Kevin Schwamm, and he preaches at New Hope Community Church. And you can also look him up. We'll try to link to all this stuff, all the things that we're recommending in the show notes so that you can easily find this. But he is a man that is deeply passionate about the gospel. And you hear that in every one of his sermons. What I love about my father is that no matter what he is preaching on, Christ is always at the center. He never strays too far from Christ and the hope that he brings, no matter what the subject matter is. And he is one as well that does this wonderful thing where he wants to work through the scriptures and he lets God set the agenda for his church by going verse by verse. And that's something that I've always admired about him. So look up New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire, the Reverend Dr. Kevin Schwamm. Yeah, I'll just say a quick comment about dad's preaching too, because this is our podcast show and we can do whatever we want. Um, what I love, you know, I don't, I don't remember ever a time walking out of the sermon and thinking, man, that was a stinker, right? I don't ever <laughs> remember. I don't ever remember that. Um, and, and I think a lot of preachers feel like they have to hit it out of the ballpark every single week. It has to be an amazing sermon every single week. And that really is just the wrong-headed way to approach preaching because preaching is an ordinary means of grace. It, should, it shouldn't be unusual. There sh- it, shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't be ostentatious, right? It shouldn't be ornate. It should just be the regular week-in, week-out preaching of the word. And that's what's impressed me about dad's preaching so much is not that he doesn't have great sermons. There are lots of times that I walk out of there and I look at Ashley like, man, that was a great sermon. But it's great. They're great sermons because they're what this congregation needs to hear. And because, as you said, the the agenda for our church and the agenda for the teaching ministry of our church is driven by the word of God. Dad usually picks a book in the summer, because people are in and out, he usually has a topical series, some sort of topic he's preaching through expo- you know, expositionally. But he picks a book and he preaches that book. And that, that, that means we have a reg- regularly hear about generosity and giving. Right? We don't have like a donation Sunday because we just talk about being generous and giving to the church when it comes up in the text. And right. we, don't, we don't have an eschatology series because we just talk about eschatology when it comes up in the text. So I will echo everything you said about dad's preaching. The, the other local preacher that I want to recommend, um, and you know he's a friend of the show, he's a great guy, he's a phenomenal preacher, is Nate Pickowitz. Right on. Um, he, uh, I'll put the link to his show. He's also on Sermon Audio if you want to look it up there. Um, but he, he is just a really crisp expositor of the word. Um, and he, he takes such care to address exactly what the text is addressing. Um, and, and, you know, he's another one of those pastors that sometimes a sermon is 35 minutes because that's, that's what the text that's in front of him requires that week. Sometimes the sermon is 65 minutes because that's what the text in front of him requires. So he's another pastor that his preaching is dictated by what is in front of him in the text. Um, I believe that they just finished um, Galatians. Were they, no, they were in Colossians. I think they're going into Galatians now. Um, so it's it's just a really, they're really good sermons. And they're just really, and he's got that smooth like radio show voice. I just love it. I could go to sleep to that voice. Yeah, he is great. So here's what we need to do. Everybody should go out and listen to all four of these really fantastic men, because I would be, nothing would make me happier for all or any one of them, to be as famous as Stephen Furtick. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want them to be as famous as Stephen Furtick. <laughs> I, I want them, I want them to, and this is because I, I say that because um, I would love it if their preaching was as well 
was as spread far and wide as Stephen. That's Burnett. what I mean. That's what I mean. I know that's what you mean, but this is this is I want want to close on this. The mark of good preaching and the mark of a good preacher is that the preaching and the preacher seeks to make Christ's name glorious and famous. Right. So so I don't remember who it was. Zinfandel? Zinzendel? It's not Zinfandel. That's some sort of white wine. Isn't that the wine? Count something or other with a Z. <laughs> I can never remember his name. But he said, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Yeah, like that's, for sure. That's the call to ministry for most people in history. And this this era of celebrity pastors is not new. I mean, for every every Augustine that there was in in the Middle Ages or in the patristic era, there was a hundred bishops or pastors that nobody has ever heard of. And for every every Luther, there are a hundred pastors that nobody has ever a thousand pastors that everyone no one's ever heard of. And for every um you know, every Mike Horton or R.C. Sproul or Alistair Begg or any of these sort of celebrity famous preachers that are in our era, there are a hundred Kevin Schwams and Nate Pickowitzes. And, you know, there are a hundred preachers that you've never heard of. And the blessing of right. our age is that you can now get access to all that preaching. I can get access to the preaching of ev- almost every single church in my area. So, so yes, my pastor is important for me to listen to. That's who I should be listening to week in, week out. That's the person who God has called me to be accountable to and who is accountable for my spiritual care. But Nate Pickowitz in Gilmanton Ironworks, which is an hour away, is likely going to have more to say about my life and more to say to me as a Christian than Mike Horton in California is for sure or Liam Gallagher in Philadelphia or whoever. Um, so just keep that in mind, check out these guys. But if, if you are not and, and take, take this week to, to encourage your pastor because preaching is hard work. It's really hard work. And I don't know any other profession that requires you to get up week in and week out and bury your soul to the congregation because more often than not, as you're preparing for a sermon, God is, is digging, is doing surgery on you. Right. Based on what you're preaching, whatever it is, when you stand before a congregation and you preach the word of God, that word that's coming out of your mouth is coming straight back at you. Usually twice as hard as it's coming at the people that you're preaching to. So just encourage your pastor this week, pray for them, um, find ways that you can, can make their life a little easier and, and be attentive to their preaching. I was going to say the same thing. I would encourage people to stop what they're doing right now and send a note to your pastor, especially if your pastor is faithful in the proclamation of the scriptures, as we've been talking about today. And I can tell you, because I have the inside track on that, your pastor needs to hear it. You may think that they feel encouraged or they know or that they have a sense that you appreciate, don't assume that. Write them a note right now and say that you love them and that you appreciate the gift that they give to your congregation. And then the other thing you can do is call our voicemail, right, Tony? Because we want to hear from people, want to hear about their pastors. We'd love to hear about the experiences that they understand in terms of how they view preaching. And we'd love to hear if you have any questions or topics that you'd love us to chat about. So what's that phone number, Tony? 607-444-444. Two seven six seven. Bros. Well, Bros. this has been the definitive one hundredth episode of the Reformed Brotherhood. Yeah, by definition, it has. This exactly. is the only hundredth episode that we're ever gonna have. That's why I know for sure that's been definitive. Yeah. One last thought before we call it a call it a wrap. 
Um, if your pastor is Stephen Furtick, then don't send him a note. <laughs> go to a different church. Just just go to a different church. You know, Charlotte, RTS is in Charlotte. There's great reform preaching down there. You've got options. Michael Kruger's church is down there. There's lots of good stuff. So just get out of there. Don't deal with that. Um, also, there is no water slide baptismal at uh, Elevation Church. I still see that Babylon B article being passed around as though people think it's that's true. That's funny. Um, so yeah, but yeah, that's encourage that's really your pastor. Funny. Give us a call. Let us know um, if you have a pastor that preaches awesome sermons or or even just preaches ordinary sermons but is faithful. Right. Send us the link to that. Um, one of the things that I've been trying to do is to link um, link to sermon resources on our Twitter feed, sharing good sermons that I'm hearing. Oh, we got to do would, that. I would love it if our if our Twitter feed or our Facebook page or even maybe an RSS feed coming out of our website if I can figure out the legality of this um, so we don't get sued out of existence is um, is to be a sort of a repository where you can come and find good preaching. Yeah. Blow us up with that. We all need to be under good preaching. And sometimes you don't even know that the preaching at your church is bad until you've been exposed to good biblical preaching. So check it out. Send us the links to your pastor's church. If, um, if he is just faithfully preaching the word, we'd love to share what he's doing there. Hey, can we close on this, Tony? You ready for this? Let's what, do it. What Chris Tomlin song drives me crazy? All of them. <laughs> I'm okay. going with God's Great Dance Floor. Yes, that's the one. It's God's right. Great Dance Floor. All right. Well, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>